We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to Stender, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts, please visit jcastnetwork.org. To share your thoughts about this podcast or others, please visit facebook.com slash jcastnetwork. There are, as you may have discovered if you were following along with the tour reading this morning, a whole bunch of animals that we are not allowed to eat and a few animals that we are allowed to eat. Uh, the portion this morning goes into uh, exquisite uh, and extraordinary detail uh, about what kinds of animals uh, we are permitted to us and are not permitted to us, uh, such uh, that begs the question, uh, which is in some senses a recurring question as we encounter the laws of Leviticus, uh, why? Why does the Torah uh, require these particular laws? Uh, And then in general, uh, why do we spend so much time in the Torah laying out laws that uh, seem in some senses arcane, uh, by some turns uh, ritualistic, uh, or maybe particularistic to the Jewish people uh, that don't seem to have a rational basis for them? We just read in the Maftir about the Para'aduma the red heifer, uh, which is the uh, paradigm in our tradition of what's known as a chuk, uh, a law that doesn't seem to have a rational basis. And indeed, many of the laws in Leviticus, uh, including what we encounter in our Torah portion, do not seem to have a rational basis. So why do we have the laws of kashrut, or in particular the laws regarding which animals we can and can't eat? Uh, and uh, and uh, uh, is there, is there some way uh, to identify a, uh, a compelling rationale for this pattern of living? And I'm not going to purport to give the answer this morning. Uh, I, I think uh, that uh, uh, in, the, uh, uh, in, in the language of, uh, of Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, who talks about uh, the, uh, the, the system of, uh, of laws in the Torah, says, why should Jews observe the particular forms of living prescribed by the Torah and tradition? To those who search for the original reasons, lost and forgotten in the routine of ages, the commandments become significant when explained and proved to be related to a rational purpose, to something known. Others leave all explanations behind, never stumbling where understanding fails. To them, the commandments are precious because they are related to the unknown. In other words, some people try to find a rational basis for all the commandments. Some people say it doesn't really matter what the rational basis is for any of the commandments, we observe them anyway. Indeed, he says, any reason we may advance for submitting to a commandment merely points to one of its aspects, omitting more than describing. To say that the precepts have meaning is less accurate than to say that they are sources of emergent meaning. Justifying the commandments by the aid they render to diet, hygiene, or the enjoyment of beauty, we catch only a glimpse of a light's reflections. So an answer that I give today about what the meaning is of kashrut or of the animals that were permitted or not permitted to eat is only a glimpse of a light's reflections, only a particular dimension. But nevertheless, I think it behooves us to, to explore and examine this. So not only do we get a 
detail of the animals we can and can't eat, but we actually do get a rationale for it in the portion, although the rationale offers, invites more questions than answers. It says, Do not defile your souls or your bodies. Do not defile your bodies with any of the creeping things that creep. And don't become impure through them. And bear impurity through them. Because I am Adonai, your God. So you should make yourselves holy and you shall be holy. Because I am holy. And don't impure, don't uh, impurify, uh, don't defile your bodies or your souls, depending on your definition of the word nafshotechem, with any of the creeping things that creep upon the earth. Ki ani Adonai, because I am Adonai, Hamalet Chem Eretz Mitzrayim, who has lifted you out of the land of Egypt, Liot Lachem Lelohim, to be to you as God, or to be to you a God. Vitem Kiroshim, and you shall be holy, Kikadoshani, because I am holy. We have a rationale. Don't defile yourselves. Because you should make yourselves holy, because I, God, am holy, because I, God, took you out of the land of Egypt to be God with you, to be in relationship with you as God, and so you shall be holy, for I am holy. We do have a rationale. The question is, what does that rationale actually mean? What does it teach to us? What does it impart to us about this system of laws that we have? And not only that, but the Midrash goes so far as to say, why do we, why does the, uh, why does the, why does God say, tie this commandment to taking us out of Egypt. And the Midrash says, It was only for this, doing this, observing these laws of Kashrut, not eating eagles and, and grasshopper. Well, you can eat some grasshopper. Not eating eagles and, uh, and, and, and uh, salamanders and snakes. No geckos or rabbits. That that's the reason that God took us out of Egypt. In order that you would take on this commandment. Anybody who agrees to this commandment is someone who agrees to the premise of having left Egypt. And anybody who violates these commandments, rebels against these commandments, has rebelled against leaving Egypt. This is the reason, according to the Midrash, according to the rabbis, their interpretation of, because I'm God who took you out of Egypt, connected to these Torah, these commandments, that's the reason I took you out of Egypt, was to observe these commandments. Why? Why is this the reason God t- takes us out of Egypt? So as you, I can hear, like, you know, a, um, a Jewish grammar, like, for this, I took you out of Egypt, right? Why for this? This seemingly arcane thing is the reason for our liberation. Well, if you think about the essence of the liberation, the whole Exodus story, it might, I think, color some of our understanding of this. At its core, the Exodus story is a moral story, an ethical story, a political story. We know that the, that, that, uh, at the core of that story, what the Torah 
objects to, rebels against, is the treatment of the Israelites by the Egyptians, of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart against the uh, outcry of the Israelites under the weight of their bondage. And so we are taken out, mitachat sivlot mitzrayim. We're taken out from the, uh, from the forced labors of Egypt, from the oppression of Egypt. So whatever the reason is that God does it uh, for us to do after we're done with Egypt, at its heart, the actual exodus was, in some senses, a political revolution, was an ethical revolution, was a moral revolution against the treatment of the Israelites by the Egyptians. We are not a people that enables oppression of the weak by the powerful. We are not a people that tolerates the objectification of human beings. We are not a people that tolerates injustice. And our God is not a God that tolerates injustice. And so we are taken out of Egypt in part at least because it's a rebellion against those injustices. And so, as Professor Michael Walzer says, virtually all the Torah, he argues, is an attempt to build among the children of Israel a counter-Egypt. The laws that were given after the exodus from Egypt are, in a sense, trying to make of the Israelites, trying to build a society that is the antithesis of Egypt, where Egypt is built upon the subjugation of human beings. The society of Israelites is built upon uh, the equality and liberation of human beings. Obviously, there are places in the Torah where maybe we didn't go quite far enough, but still, the premise is we are going to build a society that's not like Egyptian society, where Egyptian society is premised on prioritizing the firstborn. We topple the firstborn. And there's a whole subversion of the theme of the firstborn that we live in a society in which there is an assumption of equality in which we distinguish ourselves by our acts of goodness and by our merit, not by the position in which we are born. What we build in the Torah after leaving Egypt is a counter-Egypt. But there's a challenge because not every decision that we make not every moral issue that's brought in front of us is so cut and dry. There was a time, by the way, when the things that we consider to be cut and dry today weren't so cut and dry. But today we might say, of course, slavery is a cut and dry moral issue. To have slaves is bad. To uh, not have slaves is good. To support the institution of slavery is bad. To not support the institution of slavery is good. We have that moral clarity. There was a time, of course, when even that bedrock issue that virtually all of us agree upon today, you know, some a little bit uh, 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 slyly and subtly might hint at disagreements with it in, in, our, in our culture, but nevertheless, there's widespread consensus, I imagine, that slavery is bad, but there, are, there was a time when there was not such universal agreement about that. It turns out that we fought an entire war where half the country was in support of that institution and the other country was not. Sometimes moral decisions are not so cut and dry. 
are not so clear. We don't always have a binary in front of us between good and evil. I went with our 10th graders uh, this past week to Washington, D.C. We went to the Holocaust Museum. We had a really powerful conversation after it about moral responsibility, the responsibility to stand up in defense of others and to, uh, and to challenge unjust laws and to violate even potentially unjust laws. But then we went a little bit deeper and we said, how do you know? How do you know when a law is unjust? And how do you know when it's time to stand up in defense of, uh, of, of, of justice and goodness and righteousness when all the other people around you might disagree with you? How do you not get swept up in the mindset that what is happening is perfectly okay? And I went even further to say that even Adolf Hitler didn't wake up in the morning to say, hmm, how can I be evil today? <laughs> it's true. Right? What Hitler thought that he was doing was right, was good. And many people were able to, uh, were, to, were able to be persuaded that the cause of the Nazis was right and good because sometimes moral issues are not so clear, at least in the moment, between black and white. So, we are given in our Torah portion... A list of animals, categories of animals. And what we say about some of those animals, somewhat arbitrarily, one might argue, that some are tameh and some are tahor. Some are impure, some are pure. You stay away from the impure ones, you can only eat the pure ones. You don't even touch the impure ones, especially not their corpses, and you only touch the pure ones. There are things that are sherets and shekets, things that are, 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 are gross and defiling, and there are things that are good and pure and tahor. You can touch those and not the others. The Torah establishes, and especially the authors of Leviticus, establish a clear binary between tahor and tameh. As if to say that there's no space in the middle. There's no gray area. That we are called upon to make a choice when we look at the world. There are things that we categorize as no good and things that we categorize as good. So many times I think that we get paralyzed between both andism or between the complexity of the moral choices that are placed in front of us. I don't know how many of you watch the show The Good Place. If you don't, you should. It's a great show. And one of the main characters in The Good Place is a moral philosopher named Chidi. Uh, and uh, Chidi, the moral philosopher, is notorious for never being able to make a decision however small and however large in his life. He gets paralyzed by picking a muffin in the morning because maybe he tries to run through all the scenarios and possibilities in which one muffin might be good and which another muffin might be bad. And so he can't even pick a muffin. And it's a running joke in the, in the show that the moral philosopher can't make a moral decision. Can't even make a decision that doesn't seem to have a bearing on morality. Can't make a decision at all. Because it's true. Moral decisions are often very complex. I have a lot of admiration for politicians of all political stripes. Because on some level, they have to choose. They have to look at a bill that is complicated that addresses complicated issues. Sometimes it addresses multiple complicated issues, sometimes overlapping and sometimes not. And they have to say yes or no, up or down. 
sometimes saying that maybe I don't think it's perfect. It's not what I would really like to do. It has parts of it that I kind of have to hold my nose about, but I'm going to have to say yes or no, up or down. They have to make a binary choice. Is this good, or at least is it better than bad, or is it bad? I struggle with that as somebody who is more like cheaty. Um, I struggle with having to make that binary decision. It's one of the reasons that I guess I didn't go into politics because having to actually vote yay or nay on a particular bill uh, seems really, really challenging to me because I can make good arguments one way or the other. But here, I think, is what the Torah is saying to us. That there comes a time where we have to say yay or nay. Where we have to identify things as good or as bad, as right or as wrong. We were talking a lot last week about the Hebrew term tzedek or tzedakah, which, uh, which is sometimes translated as equity. And, uh, and uh, David and others were objecting to the translation of tzedakah as equity, uh, although I think that there's a good argument to be made that it could be translated that way, at least in some circumstances. But more commonly, tzedakah is translated not as equity, but as righteousness. What is righteousness? Righteousness is a person who does right, or the act of doing right, as opposed to the act of doing wrong. Another value that's often held with tzedakah is mishpat, which we sometimes translate as justice. Justice is also, in some sense, a binary. Either something is just or something is unjust. The other term that goes along often with mishpat and tzedakah is chesed kindness, right? That stands in opposition to something else. Either something is kind or it is not kind. And we serve a God who is the epitome of chesed, mishpat, tzedakah, a God that is kind, a God that is just, and a God that does righteousness. And we are called also in all of the little and big decisions in our life, in all of the complex challenges that moment by moment, minute by minute, that face us. And as Heschel says, that there are times in this moment where we feel how every minute in our civilization is packed with tension, like the interlude between lightning and thunder. There are times where we feel like that. But our tradition calls on us to say, there comes a time where we make a choice. We can't stand in the middle. We choose good or bad, just or unjust, kind or unkind, right or wrong. That, I think, is why we are given this system of kashrut with its clear binaries between pure and impure, between the kinds of things we can eat and the kinds of things we can't eat, and no room in the middle, no gray areas where there are things that we might not. Because it is moral training for us to be able to make decisions and choices in our lives, to choose the side of the good and not to feel paralyzed in the middle because maybe we don't know. And certainly to be able to distinguish between good and bad. The text says that you become impure through it. And it says, Adam mitame atzmo me'at, mitamin oto harbe. That a person who impurifies himself a little bit will be inclined to impurify himself a lot. And it says the opposite. That you should make yourselves holy and be holy. It says 
in the Midrash, Ish, Shemikadesh Oto Me'at, Mikadesh Oto Harbeh. A person who has inclined himself or herself to sanctify him or herself a little in small places, in these minuscule decisions, will be trained to do so when the decisions are bigger and harder. This, I think, is why Kashrut fits in this system of building a counter-Egypt, and even more that the rabbis say that it is the reason we left Egypt was to fulfill this commandment. Because in Egypt, there was clearly a breakdown of the distinction between right and wrong and good and bad. And here, we are radically reorienting ourselves from the smallest act that we do, sometimes mindlessly, on a daily basis of eating, to be able to make clear and categorical decisions, pure and impure, good and bad, right and wrong, because we want to be ready when the harder decisions come in front of us to be able to say, impure or pure, good or bad, right or wrong. Heschel says, yes, Heschel says that this is the decision we have to make. Whether our life is to be a pursuit of pleasure or an engagement for service, the world cannot remain a vacuum. Unless we make it an altar to God, he says, it is invaded by demons. This is no time for neutrality. We Jews cannot remain aloof or indifferent, We, too, are either ministers of the sacred or slaves of evil. The system of Kashrut trains us to remember that there is no moral middle ground. That we are either ministers of the sacred or slaves of evil. Either the world is made a dwelling place for the divine or it is invaded by demons. We get the training in the small places so that in the moments when it most matters, in the moments where dignity and lives are on the line, when justice is at stake, we know which side to stand on and we choose a side. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom.